This is the last hour. And as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It's whoever that denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and the Father, and this is what he promised us, eternal life. I'm writing to you these things, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, And as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it is taught you, remain in him. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. So uh, I was going to call this one the Antichrist and the Coming Age of Oil, which... uh, I think would probably make a great title for a very profitable series of novels about the end times. But it seemed kind of wrong to me because, uh, to be honest, after doing the work on this, the Antichrist turns out to be much more boring than you would have thought. But uh, there's a really significant theological point that ties in beautifully with the stuff that we've been talking about uh, in terms of uh, sensing, hearing, seeing, connecting with God. So the kicker for, and uh, the thrust of the letter, as we've talked about it so far, was uh, First John has written to encourage its audience to continue in the truth that they already knew. And you see that formulation repeated over and over. I'm not writing to you because you don't know something. I'm writing to you because there's a truth that you already know. And I won't go over the whole shtick uh, all over since I've, I've done it a couple of times now, but that's the purpose of the letter is that, you know, to see a vision of Jesus, to hear the message of the word and to remain is uh, the kind of core thrust. And then here in the kind of end of chapter two, the letter is going to start to dig into the specific problems facing this specific congregation. And so, you know, it's worth reflecting on that. We started a little bit last week talking about some of the stuff that was going on for this congregation in this context. And, you know, it's useful to do it not only to understand uh, the kind of direction and thrust of the letter, but also uh, there's some element of what happens in church congregations across time that I, at least I find to be comforting and, and we might learn something from the specific travails of, uh, of this congregation. The basic question is, what does it mean? I mean, ultimately, the basic theological question is, is what does it mean for uh, uh, the, how do we think about the incarnate character of Christ in, in, in Jesus Christ? That's the kind of big issue that drives this story. And it, you know, reading behind the background is kind of a tough story because really this is a story about a divorce in a congregation. Well, some people leaving. And the breaking point was oil. So this portion of the letter basically outlines these two parties in the divorce. And we talked about some of these underlying issues last week. There were folks who thought that Christ incarnate meant that God was impossibly, paradoxically, the whole shtick, 
uh, fully God and fully man, that Jesus Christ was fully God and uh, fully human, and that God is incarnate in the material person, Jesus. In fact, you know, that's what Christ means, right? The, the anointed one. And, and one of the things this letter is about is about the kind of character of that anointing. But there's this problem that emerges as soon as you try and define what it means to be the anointed one. That was the kind of thing that these two parties were arguing over. And as you recall, one party said, eh, can't be fully incarnate in the human person uh, because uh, God is a spirit and the material world is evil. And so we don't really want to think about Jesus Christ as being God incarnate in man. We don't want to think about the anointing as being a, 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 as representing the idea that God could be fully present in human form. On the other side, there are folks that, I don't know, want out in the end in the church and for good reason who think that uh, God is fully incarnate in the person of Jesus. But that was the kind of divide between the two elements of the congregation. But the, really th- the thing that kind of started and amplified the fight, maybe the, cam- the straw that broke the camel's back, was thinking about what it specifically meant to be anointed. Is it as simple as saying, uh, I don't know, we say change the emphasis in the person of Jesus Christ to the idea of uh, Christ as some kind of abstract anointing or the presence of God that doesn't really meaningfully rest in the humanity of Jesus Christ? Or are we saying that when we uh, identify the person of Jesus Christ, we understand that anointing to be not just some spiritual abstraction, but the real presence of God in the flesh, the real presence and real contact with the flesh between uh, God and the material realm, and that even a God that could born and be born and, and die. The next few chapters of 1 John kind of detail the divide between these two groups. And the way that those two groups are talked about for the rest of the letter is those who remain in Christ and those who don't. Those who have the vision of the anointing, that it fully represents the incarnate Jesus, and those who kind of wanted to go another way. And, you know, some stay with and abide in the body of Christ, and others leave, and they kind of talk about and do something different. They, uh, you know, don't want to have anything to do, essentially, with a God who is small, silly, and vulnerable enough not only to be contained in human form, to, to have been able to be born and have died, etc. If you have any doubts that that's the basic divide for this letter, the easiest place to see it is, you know, if you skip forward, and we'll get there in a couple weeks to John 4.2, it defines it this way. All those who remained in him versus those who've kind of pursued a fake or a false god, the uh, kind of core thing of those who remain in him is what they affirmed that he was in the flesh, is what John 4.2 tells us. So, you know, the, one who, the ones who remained with the body, who abided in it, believed that God was in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, and the other folks said that the character of the anointing was something different. All right, so verse 18 is the one we'll start with to kind of work it all out. It has a couple of notable fe- features. So, 18, dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming, and even now, many antichrists have come. Now, for folks in our community, when you hear the word antichrist, I don't know, you conjure up images of Nikolai Carpathia or, I don't know, uh, maybe of other possible antichrists whose uh, job is to be the foil for Jesus in the second coming. You know, a man of peace who will use the UN or some other tawdry global organizations. Crypto's probably involved in there somewhere, maybe 5G, who knows. Uh, But there's a secular world government that'll persecute Christians. Maybe it's Bill Gates. Maybe it's Bill Clinton. I don't know. It seems like there are a lot of possible antichrists in the 90s. It was a weird time. But anyway, (laughs) 
Even though this passage uses the idea of the Antichrist in the singular, it also says that many Antichrists have come. So what does it mean? Well, if you look at the Greek, obviously, actually, no, it totally won't help because the word is just Antichristos, anti-against and Christ, the anointed one. So it doesn't help that much to figure out what they mean by Antichrist there. It's simply someone who is against Christ, against the anointed one. Now, 18 doesn't provide too much more help except to say the fact that so many antichrists has come is the means by which we know this is the last hour. And last hour is an idea that we've talked about. You might recall Dr. Benfield's citation of the apocalyptic eschatological expectation. The last hour could mean literally the kind of clock is winding down for earth. The last hour could mean there is an important time for choosing where something was at stake for the community, but you know, not that much more helpful in understanding what Antichrist is. But there is one thing in 18 that helps us understand something of the character of the Antichrist, because there's that word know. So uh, this is how we know it is the last hour. And that word is gnosko, which means something like, it's like in the Spanish, conosco, right? It's a different form of knowledge. It means something like that we uh, experience or perceive or feel. So we know that uh, there, uh, we're near the final hour because we see and feel and experience, we have the truth of our senses that speaks to us, that tells us that this hour of decision is near to us. We see experientially, at least in the case of this congregation, that there were some who were against the anointing of Christ Jesus, and they see that uh, because they were against the anointing of Christ Jesus and all the stuff that it entailed. They were ones who denied Christ, and so, uh, as this passage says, they went out from us who see the anointing, who have experienced the character of Jesus, and it you know, connects back beautifully with all that stuff we've been talking about, about sight and about hearing. So 19, they went out from us, and they did not really belong to us, or more appropriately, they were not of us. For if they were of us, they would have remained, or abided is a better kind of translation there, with us. But their going, and it should be, I think, translated more accurately, made manifest for us or put into plain sight that they were not of us. Now, that's the divorce part I was talking about. And I said earlier it was about oil. Here's the thing. Look at 20. You have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. So there's something about the character of the anointing that connects the person of Jesus with, uh, or, uh, with uh, kind of divine, uh, as, as manifest in Christ. This is something that is about the character of the incarnation, but weirdly enough, it's also something about oil. And that's the fact that distinguishes the side that stayed from the side that remained. They had the anointing of the Holy One. Well, this is a concept worth digging in on. Antichrists here are not people who seem like Jesus but want to implement the rule of Satan by implementing a global order or whatever the thing is. Antichrists here are people who have a specific position on the anointing who have a specific objection to the anointing. And I mean that like in the liturgical sense, not just in the kind of abstract sense. The, the word here for anointing is basically unique to 1 John. It's used three times here in our passage for today. And it seems like as you read it, it's almost early Christian slang or insider jargon. The word there is charisma, not charisma, charisma. So that doesn't sound that different. <laughs> charisma, C-H-R-I-S-M-A. The idea of anointing appears in other places, and as you all know, the idea of anointing has this really cool background to it. So the idea of anointing, the normal Greek word is karamai, and it means something like, of course it meant to put oil on someone, 
but it comes more deeply and more beautifully from an etymology that connected anointing with contact. So when people thought about the idea of anointing, they thought about the physical sense of, you know, putting oil on your finger and putting it on someone's forehead. What was behind the idea of anointing was not just the kind of character of the oil or whatever. It was supposed to embody and recall the sense of the kind of intimate exchange between someone who lays their hand on you with oil and puts it on your head. Anointing was contact. Now, charisma, not charisma, like I said, is unique in the New Testament. It's only used, it's used three times in the passage for today, and it draws from the larger word for anointing that means like contact with the Holy One. And the author is insistent here on the idea that you know you've experienced, you have been in the context of the truth of that anointing. Now, for us Protestants, that idea of a chrism or chrisma may, might not be that big of a deal, but you know, if you were to go to a Catholic church or an Orthodox church, or uh, even to apparently the um, Nordic Lutheran churches still use it, there's actually a specific oil called chrism or chrisma that has specific liturgical uses. You rub it on someone. And if we look at like accounts of how this was used in the early church, here's the thing that hopefully, this is mind-blowing for me, maybe not for you. What are the places that you put this oil on someone? Put it on their head, you put it on their heart, but more importantly, over their eyes and over their ears. It was concrete sense of contact with their senses, with their eyes and their ears. And it was a specific, a lot of New Testament folks think, liturgical practice that the reason this word chrisma is used here is literally the fight in this community was about whether or not they did this anointing as a way of marking who was a member in the community and some people rejected it. So if you go back to 20 after that detour on anointing and chrisma, you have an anointing from the Holy One and all of you know the truth. And the interesting translation note here is that the word truth doesn't actually appear there. The word is Ido. And that's a, it, it, it's a familiar word for us, even if you don't remember it right off the bat. It's the same word for seeing something by touching it with your eyes. It's the same word that, you know, because we don't, tra- we translate it as truth because it's so, it's hard to explain all that bulky, crazy eye stuff without a couple of, you know, sermons on it or whatever, but it's talking about the point of the anointing is not just that it was a liturgical practice that put oil on someone's ears and eyes and head and heart. The point of the anointing one, uh, anointing was that for this community, the uh, kind of sense of sacrament that they had was that you would rub this oil on someone and there's this weird almost, it's not quite transitive property, but this beautiful kind of instantiation of the incarnation that as the person would touch you and put oil on your head, they were bringing you into real contact with the person and community of Christ. And not only that, Christ was bringing all of us into real contact with the person, community, and presence of God. So this seems like a a liturgy fight over the question of whether or not people put oil on. And that makes more sense to me because, you know, the things churches usually fight about are not Christology in the abstract. They're like, when do you baptize someone or who gets to baptize someone or, you know, all the different things that we fight about. But for this community, there was this specific thing. They were talking about a fight over whether or not in the context of the community you would apply the chrism to the person on their eyes, on their ears, on their head. And by doing so, you would inaugurate and invite and bring them into the community. But there was so much more besides just this like little, little liturgical dispute, because the grounds for that dispute were what? You imagine the people on the other side, the Antichrist, the one who were against the anointing, what would they say? How silly of you to imagine 
that something as simple as oil could create a real means of contact with an experience of Christ. Because after all, God is, you know, an abstract spiritual principle, and God doesn't really inhabit bodies. God doesn't really become fully incarnate. God doesn't really care about the material world. So why are you all starting out your church service rubbing this silly oil on everyone's head? Those were the Antichrists. We think about the Antichrist most of the time as someone who denies the character of Jesus Christ as God. In the original context, the Antichrist was someone who denied the character of Jesus Christ as human, as materially connected, as an incarnation, an embodiment of the church of Christ, the body of Christ, the entirety of our community. And I guess maybe the you know, upshot of how we've thought about Antichrist is we think the Antichrist is some mean person that's going to take over the maybe recovers from a head wound or whatever the thing was when we were kids. But like Antichrist here is really someone who says, look, this God cannot care and cannot move and cannot be perceived by and cannot make contact with the community because the material world is stupid and broken. It's a prison. The Antichrist here was someone who denied that the anointing of the experience of God in the person Jesus Christ was even possible. And that's why they rejected something as simple as rubbing oil on another person's head. And that idea of anointing as a kind of foundation for community is found all over the Bible when you really look for it. Like in 2 Corinthians 1, 19 through 22, Paul says in describing the Son of God, Jesus, that in order to preach Jesus and to have certainty that what? That you need to be and have this anointing. It says, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are always yes in Christ. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us and set the seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Because if you strip away all the high flute and references, latent in the idea of annoying and er, anointing and spiritualizing the idea of anointing, I mean, obviously, like connects back Passover and marking doors, and baby Jesus got all those oils, and there are all, all kind of references to kind of oil and anointing. But at root, it was not just about what was in the liturgy. It was it was affirming the idea that in a community we could know God by making contact with God in the person of Jesus Christ and through one another. For them, oil was not that different from communion. It was a tangible representation of the idea that when Jesus came and Jesus redeemed the world, Jesus did not ignore the material world. Jesus did not ignore our bodies or material reality, but instead he took them up and redeemed them, made them holy. Remember that Athanasia story about a city that is honored by the fact that a king comes such that every house in the city is lifted up and every house in the city is made royal and holy by the presence of the king in the city and by the same token, the presence of Christ in the person Jesus takes all of us, our material world, the people around us, the creation in all its glory, creation in all its brokenness, and instead asks us to put, make contact with it, to spread the idea of it being uh, connected to and being uh, and knowing the possibility of Jesus within it, to touch someone with their, whether it's with your eyes or whether it is uh, by hearing with your ears or whether it's by putting oil on your hand and, and putting it on someone else's head in the context of a blessing. Jesus Christ has come to redeem and to make contact with the world. And any doctrine that says anything other than that is one that is anti-Christ. 
It is against the idea of an anointing. And more, uh, more generically, it's against the idea of a God who loves and can transform the created world. Once you understand how the senses work for them, the big theme of this letter has been to say, look, y'all, there's so much tangible evidence of the presence of and contact with Jesus Christ and with God the Father. And the point behind anointing is to say, like communion, that the literal physical contact with folks is an anointing that allows us to know something about the character of a God who loves us, who is connected to it with us, and who seeks to redeem us. That's what the Antichrist rejected. If bodies weren't relevant to a spiritual God, how, can, how in the world can two bodies touching with oil really meaningfully embody Christian community? And of course it's not the touch, nor is it just the oil. Instead, it's this affirmation that God has taken the material world, taken our bodies, taken everything about creation, and sought to make it holy, to restore it, and to redeem it. So the ones who were Antichrist were essentially anti-anointing. They were anti and don't mishear me, like they weren't the Antichrist of kind of Christian drama, but they are every bit, if not more, dangerous because this tendency to say that God is disconnected from the world or doesn't care about the world or doesn't care about the material suffering of people or doesn't seek to transform our bodies, our hearts and our souls and our desires, all those things are latent in this kind of spiritualization of the concept of God, the expense of seeing community as a concrete point where we really touch and are touched by and change and are changed by the person of Jesus Christ. So the anti-anointers, the antichrist, they left the community and they continued acting like they were exemplars and representatives of the true gospel. But as 21 through basically like 20, I don't know, three or four make clear, it uses this word lie a lot, but really the word in Greek, and it's an easy word that you know, is pseudos. They were pseudo-Christians. They were fake Christians. They were ones who might preach the kind of idea, some of the kind of abstract ideas in the gospel, but what made them fake is that they denied not only the incarnation, but its implications in the world. That there was nothing that was more fake than denying the idea that God had come to save and to redeem our material reality, to save and redeem creation, to save and redeem us, even in our bodies. That's what made him faker. In verse 22, who is the liar or the pseudos, the faker? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one. Such a person is antichrist denying, and get this, the father and the son. They deny the father because there's no concrete means of contact with the father, if not incarnate in the person of Jesus. But to see that God is incarnate in the person of Jesus brings us into new relationship with the father. And all of a sudden, all this stuff, at least to me, really starts to make sense because if you were an antichrist, the real bad thing that you did was deny that Jesus was incarnate in a body. But if you were for Christ, if you were for the community, if you were for the idea that the things that we did, whether it's eating bread or rubbing oil on someone's head or giving them uh, you know, support in a time when things are tough or doing charity for others, all those things are the embodiment of and the extension of the incarnate Jesus Christ. They're the thing that makes our vision of what it means to be a Christian, not pseudo-Christianity, but real Christianity. One that meaningfully extends the character and person of Christ. Skip to 28. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Confident. What a rough translation. The word here is one that we've talked about a bunch. It's parisia. It's that word to like 
Tell the truth even when it's dangerous. It's that word that says that you've been changed, you have contacted, you have touched the vision of Christ with your eyes. The, 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 the sound of the word has not only hit your ears in the kind of sense of physical vibration of sound, but has reached deep into your soul and into your spirit and taught you something about the character and order of the universe. It's the experience that when someone puts oil on your head, that there is a concrete point of contact between those folks that in and of itself is an extension of the incarnation. And in doing so, we see a God who has not only been incarnate in flesh, but a God who loves, a God who is able to touch us and who we are able to touch and in doing so to transform us. Because at root, we need to have that fundamental faith that when God comes in flesh, God transforms the world by anointing it, by touching it, and by changing us with it. Amen. Questions or talk? So... 